whenever anybody bends over, people will automatically turn and look at that person's butt. Regardless of Regardless. Sex. Regardless. Sex, age, shape. <laughs> I just think people... I just... It, it's a universal truth, I feel. Okay. Let's start the show. For those who do not know... The biggest wrestling spectacular... Names from all over the country. Former champions. I've never seen anything like it. Eddie Graham. Florida promotion. Vern Gagne. Superstar Billy Graham. Road Warriors. Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee. Bill Watts. Jerry Jarrett. Dory Funk, Harley Race. Uh, Nick Bockwinkle. This is Cigars in Conversation with Derek St. Holmes, Esquire. Hello and welcome to Cigars in Conversations, brought to you exclusively at OneGimmickWorld.com. I am your co-host, Jay Gilke, and I am sitting here with a true raconteur in the world of professional wrestling. This man has shared the ring with a who's who of talent that ranges from Adam Pierce to Matt Classic, a wrestler, manager, commentator, and a trainer who's contributed essays to wrestling publications as well as a self-proclaimed expert on the formative history of bodybuilding. With 20 years of experience, he is a true renaissance man with unlimited knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, I am speaking of the one, the only, the incomparable Derek St. Holmes Esquire. Derek, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I am fantastic. Uh, Both of us... uh, Resting now after morning runs. Yes. And I mean actually running, not the runs. Ha ha ha. No, that's always after. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, let's jump right in to today's topic. Uh, we didn't let it out last time on the podcast, but today we're going to be talking about the AWA Championship. Mm. And uh, if I were to reflect back on it as a child, and if you talked to me back in 1984 and 1985... I would say to you that my knowledge of the history of the AWA championship was Vern Gagne had the title, and then Nick Bockwinkle had the title, and then Vern Gagne had the title, and then Nick Bockwinkle had the title, and that was about it up until that point. But that was me. So I'm here today because I want you to really open our eyes to this. I mean, I've studied since then, and now I know, and I'm smarter for it, but what I'm saying is that... Um, really seemed at my young age that it was either Vern Gagne or Nick Bockwinkel as the champion. You don't remember Rick Martel? No, I totally remember Rick Martel. I absolutely remember that stuff. Rick but Martel that... was the champ like when I first got back into it. My first uh, first issue of PWI that I bought had Rick Martel on the front. No, and I remember that. I just feel, I mean, I was watching AWA in 76, 77 with oh. my dad. And I just remember it always either being Nick Bockwinkle or Vern Gagne as the yeah, champion. Especially at that time period it right. was. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, of course, later on. But I'm saying as a child, that's how I remembered it. It was either one of those two. Well, as we get into this episode, we'll get into the reasons behind that and explain sure. the whole philosophy of it. Uh, it's frustrating as a fan, but makes perfect business sense. So. No, I, absolutely. And I, I agree with that. So um, just to set the stage again for the listeners at home or at work or in their cars... Um, we're on a hands-free device, hopefully. Yes, absolutely, please. absolutely. Uh, we're both from the Midwest. We're both right. Wisconsin. Right. And I was, right, I was born 
and raised on the AWA. Before I knew the WWWF or the WWF or NWA, any of that, it was always AWA. I thought you were going to go into the Wisconsin-born, Wisconsin-bred, and when you die, you'll be Wisconsin dead. Never heard of it. What? Seriously. Oh, gee. Well, I mean, it's a southern thing, but... You can put in pretty much any like state. Like a southern Wisconsin, like Janesville? No, no, it was a southern boy. I'm southern boy and southern bred, you know. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. I, I know that, but I didn't know it was like a Wisconsin thing. Well, I just... I just put it, I thought I thought you were going to take it and run with it. All right, well, let's talk Sorry. about... Sorry, Sorry. <laughs> let's, let's talk about the AWA uh, heavyweight uh, championship. Um, originally, the title was uh, first won by Pat O'Connor, and that was uh, on January 9th of 1959 in St. Louis, right? Sure. Okay, sure. Um, school me, school, Mr. St. Holmes. I shall school you. Uh, the AWA title, which of course is firmly voodoo with Vern Gagne, uh, has its beginnings actually in Omaha in 1957. Uh, what a lot of people don't know is for the first couple of years of the AWA, there was a Minneapolis office and an Omaha office. And so sometimes they would have the same champs and sometimes they wouldn't. The Omaha office was actually owned by the Duziks. Okay. Um, the only one you might recall is Frank Duzik, who was in uh, Kerry Von Erich's corner at Super Clash 3 as yes. the world-class representative. Yes. I'm not sure if he was a real son, but there was a group of five brothers called the Dirty Duziks. Okay. With names like Emil and Rudy and other ones that I can't remember, but uh, never a dull match with Duzik was their slogan. Oh, but again, nice. that was a family of barnstormers, and they had this Omaha office. Now, when Vern Gagne started to buy up the territory, he actually bought the Minneapolis territory from Tony Stecker. Right. So he had bought, I'm sorry, in 1960, that's when he gets in and he buys all of that. 1957, there was another title change that had ripple effects throughout the wrestling industry. Luthez was getting tired of wrestling in the tank towns and wanted to take the title to Europe. Okay. So, because he wanted, he saw some money there. Obviously, the people at home didn't like the champion being gone because they wanted to support their own title. So there was a test match between Luthez and Edouard Carpentier in Chicago that left the title picture uh, in a lot of question there where Thez still had the title, but Edouard Carpentier was considered an NWA title claimant. Oh, okay. And so what the uh nwa government was going to do was it essentially come up with a interim champion while fez toured with the actual world title uh there are letters where eddie kohler is writing to the nwa saying you know this is the percentage i want and everything like that but it grew into problems where the people in the united states wanted edouard carpentier to tour around here as the champion but eddie uh, it's eddie quinn in in Toronto, Montreal. Eddie Quinn in Montreal. I think it's Montreal. Yeah. Um, Wanted Carpentier in his territory four nights a week to make money for him. Sure. You know, so it it basically, it was the same problem that developed much later when Jim Crockett took over Ric Flair's bookings and suddenly he wanted Ric Flair and the Carolinas in his deal, but all the other promoters wanted him to tour. Right. So this experiment failed, but what happened is because Carpentier had this victory over Thez in Chicago, a lot of promotions would use him to transfer the world title to their local person as oh, well. Oh, okay. So they did this in Omaha. They also did this out in California for the WWA. Like that was the title that uh, the LaBelles had 
and Freddie Blassie yeah. had it and everything. So that was done. Uh, Carpentier would do jobs all over and establish a new world champion in that area. Okay. So that happened in this Omaha area. We're, so were was Stecker and the Dusiks or the Dusik or whoever, were they already together? Was it Omaha and Minneapolis at that point, or were they still split? They were split. They were two different offices, but okay. they worked together. But they worked together. Because of their okay. geographical, you know, the, yeah, the country right. was carved up right. in different, different areas. So Vern Gagne beats Carpentier in Omaha. That's his first taste of being a world champion, quote unquote. Yeah. Now Vern Gagne, although by every account could physically back it up, had, had a huge ego and, you know, wanted to be the man in charge. There's no problem with that. So he wins the title in the Omaha office and he drops it and there's, you know, the title goes back and forth there. Right. But three years later, he buys up the Stecker territory and starts to work with the Duziks um, as the two different offices. And you know, still, lending a lot of the same people, still having two different titles. Sure. And still under NWA's jurisdiction? Uh, no, AWA. At that point, it's AWA now? Yes. Okay, gotcha. So the AWA takes over. Ganya runs both territories as separate deals until approximately 1964 when he unifies the titles in Minneapolis. Can I ask a question about that? So when does Minneapolis and Omaha break off from the NWA? It, does it happen when Ganya takes over? Uh, well, it, it originally happens in 57 when they establish their own world champion. Okay. Which was Vern Gagne. Right. So that's where he started the AWA Omaha office. Okay. I'm not sure. I'm sure at the time it was probably just big time wrestling or all-star wrestling. I'm not sure what the exact title of it was, but that okay. was run as a separate office. Okay. And then he was still working with Wally Carbo in the Twin Cities to get that established up there. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. I wasn't sure on that and how that all played out. Now, how does Pat O'Connor work into this then? Uh, Pat O'Connor uh, was the first... AWA Minneapolis champion. Okay. But he was also the world champion at the time for the uh, NWA. Right. So essentially what that was was a grandstand challenge that Pat O'Connor was never going to answer. Gotcha. This, this was just a storyline reason for them to say we challenged a champion. They didn't accept it. So we established our own champion. Oh, and you know what? And let me, I think I would... Correct myself on this one. So he won the NWA title on January 9th of 1959. Then the next year in 1960, that's when he, is an, that's when he goes to AWA and wins that title. In Minneapolis. Yes, correct. Because that's when uh, AWA in Minneapolis is established. Correct. Yeah, right. So that was my bad at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Sorry about that. No, that's yeah, I like bad. that. Uh-huh. Yep, that's right. You were wrong. No, I I, you, I'm not. It's, <laughs> it's very it's, matter well, of fact. It's kind of. That, it, it, it's hey, very not my strange. podcast. This is all getting cut in post anyway. Um. But it is a, it, it is a very strange that well no this is the AWA over here and this is right. and that was the advantage of again having separate TV and being able to control your message in that area right now a lot of people over the years have done this strange deal where here's your champion here but in these two or three cities they get a separate television they run a, a different storyline sure yeah uh, for example uh, when Dick the Bruiser was running out of Indianapolis and the south part of his territory. Like uh, Baron von Raschke was his champ, but up in the northern part of his territories around the Great Lakes, he was using Sailor Art Thomas as the champion. Okay. So here's the deal with that: Sailor Art Thomas was a known strongman competitor, lived in Madison, Wisconsin, did not like to fly, so he would really only wrestle in areas he could take Greyhound buses to. Oh wow! 
And he was also uh, one of the success stories, worked at Oscar Mayer in Madison until he was able to retire, but always had a regular job. So promoters would bring him in and, you know, give him a quick run and then send him on his way because they knew they couldn't control him. And that's where Hot Dog and a Handshake came from? Ha, 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 Sorry. Yes. Some of that inside wrestling yes, stuff. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, so, okay. I don't think those promoters could afford Oscar Mayer. Yes, yeah. right, yeah. That was the high-end hot dog. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so they end up bringing in Pat O'Connor, and he wins the title in May of No, no, they never actually bring in Pat O'Connor. So he never is there at all. They just say he's the champion. Yes. Yes, and this it. is the storyline that they put out in the media of the Twin Cities. Okay, so then he doesn't, quote-unquote, defend the title for 90 days, and they just give it to Vern Gagne. Yes. Okay who coincidentally is the man in charge. This is the concept that we touched on earlier that I want to go into about the owner as champion or owner as the primary star of a territory. Okay. Uh, the reason that the owner would tend to put the title on himself or do something like that is because the owner is the only one that he knows isn't going to walk out of the territory tomorrow morning. Right. So that's why... There's so much nepotism, and I'm going to put the title on my son. I'm going to put the title on my son-in-law. These people had an ownership and a vested interest in the promotion. Right. The other thing is, and this happened a lot of times in the early days of television, like with Fritz von Erich in Texas, uh, Jerry Lawler attempted to take over, where the main star will try and steal the promotion. Oh, sure. Because in the public's eyes, they're the ones that, you know, the big deal, they don't know any uh, the whole behind the business. Right, absolutely. Kind of deal. Yep. So that's why you always wanted to concentrate your main star. You didn't want to give anybody too much power in the promotion. Right. Um, now, again, this is bad for booking, bad for presentation to the fans, but makes perfect business sense. Yeah, you know, I so, agree. So it's very frustrating, but that's why it worked that way, especially in the territory system. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I thought that you're gonna cough. Or something. Oh, sometimes I just have to breathe. Sure, that makes sense. So, okay. So, so uh, <coughs> Vern Gagne gets awarded the title on uh, August sixteenth, nineteen sixty, because of the ninety day. Yes. No compete. Uh, he goes on, holds the title for almost a year, three hundred twenty nine days. Mm-hmm. Uh, next one in line then is Gene Kanitz- Kaninsky, right? Gene Kaninsky, Kaninsky big Kaninsky, thunder. Sorry. Yes, Canada's absolutely. greatest athlete. Um, he ends up winning on July 11th, and his title run, very short, 28 days. Yeah. Uh, turnaround bout the next month, August 8th, Vern Gagne gets it right back. Yeah. And we just see this go on and on and on. This is now the formula in AWA. Well, right? in that time period, yes. Okay. Uh, because Gagne was the champ, so he would... He would often work not as a 100% babyface, as kind of a subtle heel because he is the champion and would want to yeah. hold on to his belt. But he was still, you know, had the love of the people behind him because he was a legit athlete, had all of these legitimate accolades. Um, Olympic champion, AAU champion. Well, I don't know if he's a champion, but was an Olympic caliber right, wrestler. Right, absolutely. And uh, could legitimately go. Yeah. Legitimately a very tough person. This, uh, we'll get into that later, uh, especially in uh, around 1980 when he decides to retire. That becomes a factor at yeah, that point. Yeah, for sure. But he does drop the title to Mad Dog, uh, Bill Miller, The Crusher a few times. Mr. M. Bill Miller. Bill Miller. Yeah. So in just looking through it and going through the history, I thought it was kind of 
neat or interesting for that matter that out of everybody when you look at the crusher fritz von eric um some of the other names oh crusher again mad dog Vashan, mr m is the only one to hold it for another significant amount of time he holds the belt for over 200 days everybody else is pretty much at like an 11 day seven days 26 days uh, why do you think that was? Uh, Bill Miller was uh, actual, le- like he was legit, okay. a legit amateur. So I'm sure that he and Ganya had an understanding. Ganya didn't mind passing the title to another wrestler because he knew it would be protected. Sure. And he knew the, you know, he knew he could trust the guy. Someone that yeah. was legitimate for him. Yeah. yeah. And okay. who knows? Maybe he just wanted to get out, you know, get off the road for a little bit. Gotcha. Um, I also noticed too early on <coughs> when we're looking at it. There's a point, you know, Ganya gets title back. And Crusher has it for 11 days. Then Ghani gets it back for seven days. It gets put off to Fritz von Erich for 12 days. And then it goes back to Vern Ghani. Surprise. Amazing that it's uh, all of this is uh, around, of course, in the same time. It's over the summer. Um, <laughs> and I think there's some at that point, too, because that was the early 60s. The Omaha title was still in play. And I think Crusher had had it at that point. Yes. And there was kind of the play for who was the champion with what um because then uh, on july 20th of 1963 ganya wins both the awa and the omaha title right um is and at that point he has both belts isn't that in amarillo texas no that's minneapolis and uh 63 yeah i have a match august 8 1963 well, in amarillo then, but because well that's the the return bout against um fritz von eric because von eric wins it wins both titles in Omaha on July 27th. Okay. So, right. So, it, just this whole section here to me is wild. And I, I don't know. I'm I guessing because of doing the dates in the summer, wanting to pump up houses maybe a little bit. Exactly. Those. Because in the Midwest, it was very hard to draw during the summer months because people are able to be outside. Right. So, that's... Uh, they could be trying to trump up the houses. They could be wanting to take a summer break and just you know, just spice it up a little bit and spread the title around so people see things are going on. So, right. So, it, it happened... And even in the... When the AWA got chugging, like, even in the 80s, they would gear their cards so that the, the summer months were just house shows. Right. You know, nothing big. And then all of a sudden, boom, they'd start off when school... Yeah, it was kind of neat just looking at the way that they had done that and that, it, yeah, Crusher wins both titles... Then Ghani gets it back. Then it goes to Fritz von Erich. All of these happening within three or four weeks of each other in Minneapolis mm-hmm. at shows. And then they take it down to Amarillo, and that's where Ghani wins it back, and he where he wins both titles back at that point. Yeah, and that also pumps up the Amarillo territory to, ooh, we've got a title change here right. and stuff like that. Um, so when did the titles get unified? When did the AWA and the Omaha title get unified? Uh, 1963. It was, it was 63. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Um, and then, and, and at that time, it was probably a case of the Duziks finally wanting to step down and just let Ganya buy him out. Now, when we say Ganya was the owner of the AWA, like he owned the booking office, but he had sub promoters in all of his sub cities. Sure. I know in Milwaukee it was Dennis Hilgard, in Colorado it was Gene Reed. Um, I've seen I've seen them spelled out on like program literature before, and it's like, okay. oh, these are the guys. Now. Going through, and if we're looking through the, like the years now, so when the titles get unified, and it, we're looking at towards the end of 63, through, we'll say about 65, there's quite a few title changes that happen in that point. Um, in just some of the names, you're looking at the Crusher, uh, Mad Dog Vashan's in there, 
uh, Mighty Igor. Dick um, Garza. Yeah. Uh, so He's on that episode of the Brady Bunch. Yes. That, yes. That, that imaginary episode of the Brady Bunch. <gasps> um, that is a great idea. Can I say I, I was listening uh, for editing purposes, right, right. listening to it. And I was listening to you talk about that Brady Bunch bit, and I said, God damn, that is a great, that was yeah. a great idea. That was fantastic. So I'm thinking Bobby doesn't, it, right. uh, I that's know. a again, tangent. Again. But that this, was great. Cut. I mean, seriously, I yeah. Um, I think I told my wife about that as well. Like, hey, Derek had a great it. idea. Yep. And she was like, that makes, sounds like it makes sense. Boom. So, um, but I thought as someone, again. As I believe a, Bobby grew up to be a race car driver, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's right. Yes. On the Christmas special. Yes, and then he got crippled in the the dramedy, the Bradys. Oh, I don't know. He was that married one. to Martha Quinn. Really? Yes. Uh, Martha Quinn. Never thought she was good looking. She actually got better looking as life went on. Yeah, yeah, but I remember at the time being more entranced with Nina Blackwood for just. Naughty, have you heard her? Recently? Have you heard Nina Blackwood li- recently? No. She's on Sirius XM. Oh. On the '80s channel. Good for her. Um, it sounds like someone punched her directly in the throat. Yes. And she's trying to scream for help. Constantly. That's the, the best way to describe it. She was um, in the movie Vice Squad with Wings Hauser. Yes. Yes. Another great movie. Well, let's <sighs> say that for our Wings Hauser. Neon Slime. Uh, that was the yes. song for that. Yeah. Yes. So back to the <sighs> AWA title. Um, yes. So all of the, the, the belt changes From hands. From Wings Hauser beating up a, <laughs> beating up a <laughs> prostitute with his pimp stick to yes. Vern Gagne unifying the titles in 1963. So... We're looking at all these different changes. And the one thing that I notice is that title changes happen. St. Paul, Minneapolis, Omaha. Omaha, Minneapolis, Omaha. Omaha, St. Paul, Denver. Is this all popping the towns, popping that city that they're working in at that point? I mean, that's all in basically a year and a half's time. The title changes that many times. Yes, but those are the big cities of the territory. There were still satellite towns all around. Sure. But those were the big houses, so that's where they would change the title. Okay. Uh, I just. I mean, it's not necessarily popping the towns. It's just the people watching the story. Right, and it and it just played out that way. So I thought that was pretty interesting that it got to that point. Um, something that starts to happen, actually, something that happens in 1966, and uh, it, this really just drives me batty. Do you remember back in 1966? Uh, Mad Dog. Top, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So Mad Dog Vashon wins the title. Heard it on the X. And. Um, Stanley Blackburn, the AWA president, ends up reviewing the match uh, from January 8th and declares that it was a no contest. Uh, and that was between Mad Dog and Mr. Wrestling. So um, January 14th, uh, Tim Woods' legs uh, were on the rope during that match. You know, blah, 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 all the stuff that happens, overbooking in my opinion, uh, while pinning Vashon during the final fall later... Uh, you know, Tim Woods uh, defeats him. It's just a kind, kind of a big... This is where it starts, where I start seeing it happen more and more in AWA, where things start happening, like titles are vacated or Stanley Blackburn reverses decisions. They seem to do that quite regularly in AWA. It's just seemed to become part of their yes. thing. Is that true? Yes. Uh, several things I want to touch on here. First, Stanley Blackburn. Uh, longtime president of the AWA was just a rich, uh, I believe he was in promoting in Amarillo. Like he was, he was rich outside of wrestling, Okay. but he was friendly with, you know, that crew and knew everybody. 
So he became the president because he was friends with Vern Gagne. Right. So he was essentially his Amarillo promoter and stuff like that. So he would always bring him in and use that as a crutch. That's one of the tropes of wrestling is, you know, the office is issuing this, this sure. deal. But Blackburn loved to be on TV. Okay. Now, from every account, Stanley Blackburn, big supporter of wrestling, like lent a lot of guys money that he never got paid back with, stuff like that, but yeah. had, had a great reputation in wrestling. Uh, one story that I heard about him, which I love, is the wrestler Don Fargo, who who we still have to do yeah, for a, sure. a profile on or something because it's just incredible. Something happened with him where he no longer had a social security number. Okay. That's like that. So in order for him to get paid, uh, you wouldn't pay him directly. You would send your check to Stanley Blackburn, and then Blackburn would cash it for Don Fargo okay. to like launder the money somehow. I. Is I don't like convoluted booking yeah, in I real life. Yeah, I don't know how it's set up. I still love the fact that Don Fargo somehow didn't have a social security right. number anymore. Yes. Who knows? But so that that's who Stanley Blackburn was. Uh, he was like a Jack Tunney in that he was a fictitious president. Right. Come in. Wait, 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 wait. Sorry. There's again. <laughs> oh no. But don't let him shit you about the Easter Bunny. Oh jeez. Um, so he was a fictitious president that would come in and issue these rulings. Yeah. And again, this was just a trope that Ganya relied on far too much. Uh, you know, it's something he learned, you know, a booking angle that he liked. You know, it was his dusty finish, so right. to say. Okay. You know. Yeah, it seems like they relied on it a lot. Right. So no, I, I, I'm agreeing with you 100%, oh, but I'm, yeah. I'm just saying that's where I feel it comes from. Yeah, that and uh, in, in the future... We'll we'll find out here as we dun, dun, dun. yes as we go along that it's that kind of booking that soured me to AWA. Oh, understandably. Yeah. And this is yeah. like I can actually I can pinpoint it to the point when I said you know what screw the AWA I'm done. Fair so, enough. Then we'll get there. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a teaser for later on. The kids call that foreshadowing. Ooh. Yes. Uh, so now here begins the stretch where I'm talking about. So, of course, you're going to go back and forth. There's, a, you know, Dr. X wins the belt uh, at one point, but it's basically Vergania, Dr. X, Vergania. And then in uh, November 8th of 1975, Nick Bockwinkle. But before we get to Nick Bockwinkle, I just want to say the last champion that Bockwinkle beats, of course, is Vergania. His title reign is 2,625 days. So he gets the belt on August 31st of 1968 and does not lose it until November 8th of 1975. True. Uh, one thing about this time is the AWA was a tag team territory. Yes. Like Ganya held the title, but he would only defend it once or twice a month. All of his other time was spent in the office running the business. Gotcha. But he also felt he didn't want to surrender that title to anyone he couldn't trust. Right. You know, so and quite honestly, he felt he was the best wrestler in the in the area. Is there? Do you know why uh, he leaned so heavily towards tag team wrestling at that point, or AWA did? Yeah, so that he could get money featuring the tag titles. Okay. And not the head singles title. Gotcha. Okay. Because he was, you know, he was the champion, and that like they didn't have a, they may have had a TV title or some minor, but there was no AWA Intercontinental level right. title. Right. Interesting, yeah, because I know we you know we've talked about in the past that the uh, Crockett's were big 
in the Carolinas for tag team wrestling. Right. And then so now... But again, the Crockett's, uh, not, not so much the Crockett's, but the Carolinas were very big in tag team wrestling because they also had an aging booker, George Becker, right, that wanted to keep himself on the card. So he teamed himself with Johnny Weaver and purposely booked himself in all the main event matches. Sure. So that's why they were a tag team title because the booker wanted to concentrate on himself. Whereas in the AWA, Vern was getting paid as a wrestler, but mostly as the owner. Right. So he was getting a piece of whenever the show ran. Gotcha. And so... And, and incidentally, during that time, uh, tag team champions, Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkle. Right. Um, so that's it. So this is where it goes to when we talk about, when I talked at the beginning of the show. So from 1968, basically until, oh, we'll say sometime in late 1982, it's pretty much either Bockwinkle or Ghani as the champion. Yes. Um, Ganya felt he could trust Bachwinkle. Bachwinkle had bought, I believe he lived in Egan, Minnesota, and had set down roots. He knew Bachwinkle wasn't going to jump. Right. And that's, okay. And that's why he, so that's why he, held he on stuck himself. with him. Um, while Bachwinkle was champion, was this, uh, I'm assuming, of course, from kind of going off my memory, but also just the way things ran, uh, AWA did the same thing, kind of revolving challengers a lot of times coming through the, the door to challenge Bachwinkle at that point and Ganya through the, that era? Yeah, well, Bachwinkle at that point was a clear heel. Yeah. So uh, it was always easy. That's a traditional money-drawing money tactic in wrestling is to have the heel champion. Then you always have the baby faces chasing the champion right. because the money's in the chase. So can I ask a question on this, though? Because I, I, I agree. I always, I always like the idea of the baby face chasing. So... The formula of Ric Flair as NWA champion heel coming into territories with the local babyface champion challenging and him making that babyface champion look good, the, the regional one or the, the local one, um, I've always understood that. I think it's a harder sell for me to have a heel champion that's stationary Bringing in other babyface talent and hotshotting them right away to go after the heavyweight champion. Does that make sense at all? Uh, I, I understand what you're saying, but I also feel that you're kind of putting the New York pattern of always feeding people to the new champion. Right, right. Whereas uh, I feel it was a much more subtle build. Uh, because the baby faces, sometimes they'd come in and challenge right away, but oftentimes they'd have to build themselves they up, would build it up to that. Okay. You know, so they always had uh, people on the, you know, on the back burner that were warming up. Sure. But sure. the AWA also had its its small core of of regular workers at right. that time, like right. the uh, the young talent Jim Brunzel, Greg Gagne, you know, who, who Tito Santana was in there for a while. <laughs> Can I say Bug Zumhoff? No, see, I was, but <laughs> Sorry. Zumhoff wrestled. Oh, this is good. Zumhoff wrestled uh, Ver, uh, Bachwinkle in a TV match that's on YouTube. Okay. And it's fantastic because uh, Zumhoff gets Bachwinkle rocking and rolling. Bachwinkle falls in the corner. Zumhoff comes up to kind of like push himself off and do a uh, like a Vader splash off the second but pushes himself up into such a handstand that he flips himself up and out of the ring. Oh, Jesus. And you just see Bachman going, oh, Jesus. Brings him back in, pile driver, it's done. Yeah. And it's just like, you moron. Yeah, had your shot. So so that was kind of funny. Clean it up. But, of course, you know, Ganya had the um, steady steady flow of students that he could use right, in, in right. sub 
sub roles and everything like that. And then so when Bachwinkle won the heavyweight title, did Stevens leave the territory? Did he go elsewhere or was he still sticking around? No, I think he went to New York at that time. And that's okay. Yeah. Now, uh, Ray Stevens in the AWA, kind of an interesting story there because Ray Stevens was a huge talent out in San Francisco for right. Ray Shires and everything was great. But it turns out that um, Ray Stevens liked to live the high lifestyle, but didn't really like to, you know, pay taxes and stuff like that. Yes. So there was a lot of problems with that, and the IRS was really looking at him. One of the uh, incentives that Ganya gave him to jump over to the AWA is, "I will take care of your tax troubles for you." Oh, that's so awesome. like paid off the IRS, and boom. Right. How cool. Stevens came. Well, you know, back when you could do stuff like that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You just all of a sudden get that big, that big purse. Um. Yeah, so once, uh, am I assuming too, I guess, that was Steven set to leave? Or do you think that they told him, like, look, we want to put the belt on Bachwinkle. Um, what we don't know what we're going to do. Because did they, they turned them against each other, didn't they, at one point? They turned Stevens on Bachwinkle. Oh, oh yes, yes, they did. Because they turned Stevens babyface yeah. for a while. So that was just to turn him babyface and cap him off. Yeah. I don't know the exact titles if they said, hey, you don't have a job anymore. Or, right. You know, for all we know, Stevens was getting fancy feet and wanted to go do something else. Sure, right. Because he was... Right. Great but story it, about him is um, one of his wives, he went out to get a pack of, you know, a loaf of bread and didn't come home for three weeks. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. That's, uh, um, yeah, it's only in wrestling. Yes. As usual. Um, so that worked out nicely. So then, yes, Nick Bockwinkle holds the belt, like we said, 1,714 days. And then here is the first... Um, in my in from my view, that first and at this point I was six years old. Okay. okay? But still enough at a six years old to be like, you've got to be shitting me. Okay. Okay. Uh, July eighteenth, nineteen eighty, Vern Gagne wins back the AWA title. Yep. At that point, highly resembled my grandfather. Yes. Like severely resembled my grandfather as a six year old. Watching that match, I can remember thinking to myself, there's no way this elderly gentleman is going to beat Nick Bockwinkle. And sure shit, he does. Okay. Well, I'm glad you brought this up because now we're touching on the ego and stuff that we had earlier. Yes. Uh, Vern Gagne, although on the outside appeared you know, to be somebody's grandfather, was still legitimately an incredible athlete. Sure. Um <laughs> did did his Ganya metrics every day and drank his ziggity hoop. <laughs> right. But right. no, was still legitimate and couldn't divorce that from the presentation to the fans. Like in his mind, well, I'm still the best wrestler, right. so I'm going to win the title. But didn't wasn't able to divorce that from somebody on the outside going, hey, who's this old guy in the ring? What do you mean old? Get right. in the ring with me. I'll show you who's old. So this is a problem that he had of always going back to himself because... In his mind, he was still, you know, 25 years old. Now, let me ask this. And uh, oh, sorry, a lot of people, uh, you know, guilty of this as well. I'm not trying to say he was unique at all. Right. Uh, but he was the owner, and this is how he felt. But a lot of athletes, as they get older, still in their mind think they're, you know, 30 years old and, and ready to go. Right. Um, Jody Hamilton, the assassin, tells this great story of he got out of decided to finally get out of the ring when videotape became it became a very big thing because in his mind he was in the ring he was flitting about like a butterfly zip 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 saw himself on tape and it's just who is this fat man moving in slow motion right and that's when he decided to get out of the ring 
I could see that. I can I can certainly sympathize with it. I can tell you <laughs> that right now. But you know, a, a lot of athletes, you know, Father Time takes care of us all. Luthez was a big thing about that. Like, you just yeah. no matter how good you are, you're going to age out, and it's it's a hard thing to swallow, especially in wrestling when you're getting those pops and getting that reaction every night. It's a drug. There's right. nothing like it in the world, and you know, guys get addicted to it and they'll do whatever it is to stay on top and keep getting that. And in the, again, in their minds, they're still 30 years old and they're still at the top of their game, but sure. it's just not, just not going to happen. Why did Dusty Rose win the NWA title that last time? Right. Because right. he was in charge right. and in his mind, he's the stuck, you know, he's exactly. the dream baby. Sometimes, the manner in which a person dies is often poetic, as it truly exemplifies how they lived. Pete Maravich died playing pickup basketball. Corey Stringer died on a football field. Dale Earnhardt died trying to win the Daytona 500. But Herb Abrams died while in police custody of a cocaine-induced heart attack wearing a diaper and covered in baby oil. He had been apprehended chasing hookers through the halls of a Las Vegas hotel with a baseball bat. The same bat he had used earlier in the evening to smash all the furniture in his hotel room, all in an effort to find the listening devices he thought the government was tracking him with. But before his debaucherous demise, Abram gained fame, or rather, infamy, as a wrestling promoter. Described as a con man among con men, even the name of Abram's promotion was stolen as he pilfered the Universal Wrestling Federation name when the former UWF promoter Bill Watts forgot to copyright it. With the promise of bringing wrestling back to its roots, Abrams announced his new promotion in the August of 1990 and immediately began signing big-name free agent talents such as Dr. Death Steve Williams, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, Cowboy Bob Orton Jr., and The Rock Don Morocco. Now, most of these men were free agents because they were well past their money-earning prime, but Abrams felt their name value would help the UWF immediately compete with Vince McMahon's WWF. To help this cause, he landed a television deal with Sports Channel America, which gave him national exposure for his new promotion. With loads of publicity, a roster of big names, and a national television deal, Abrams organized his television taping for September of 1990. When the gate was counted, 450 people had attended. The attendance at the second taping, held a week later, was dismal. The card only drew 125 paying customers. Wrestling fans found nothing new, fun, or exciting about the product being offered. Nearly every bout was a squash where the high-profile wrestler beat on a no-name for the entirety of the match. While the landscape of television wrestling was starting to change, Abrams stuck to the squash match formula over and over again, showcasing talent like Boris Zukov and the Power Twins. A rare show highlight featured an infamous and entertaining match between Wild Thing Stevie Ray and Dr. Death Steve Williams. Behind the scenes, the ever-paranoid Abrams had accused the Wild Thing of sleeping with his wife as well as stealing his money and cocaine. On May 10, 1991, during a television taping at the Hotel Pennsylvania in New York City, Abrams paid Dr. Death, a legit tough guy, an extra $100 to break Ray's nose during their match, and the rest, they say, is history. History that just so happened to air in its entirety on an episode of the UWF's Fury Hour TV program. 
Aloof of the events happening around him, and unable to make money on attendance or merchandise, Abrams decided the most feasible thing to do was to run a pay-per-view event called Beach Brawl in June of 91. The event drew a whopping 550 paying customers and boasted one of the lowest pay-per-view buy rates in wrestling history. Even more perplexing was Abrams himself. By all accounts, he had a heck of a cocaine habit, which often resulted in destroyed furniture. An ex-girlfriend noted that when he did cocaine, he went into a completely paranoiac state, unlike anything you can imagine. He was convinced he was being watched by the feds and would literally destroy anything and everything around him in his attempt to find the bugging devices. All the while, he would run water to cover up the sound of anything he was saying. Also bizarre was that Abram used his television programs as a vehicle to make himself the biggest star of the promotion. He did this at first by naming himself as play-by-play -play announcer, but later, as told by Mick Foley in his book, he resorted to even stranger methods. During the show, there was an advertisement for wrestling cookies, which I guess Herb felt was the natural snack food choice of all wrestling fans. Herb's grating voice was doing the talking as he hailed the benefits of Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff cookies, Wild Thing Stevie Ray cookies, and coming soon, Herbie cookies. He did the same thing with merchandise. Herb somehow landed a deal for his blackjack brawl, not only to be held at the prestigious MGM Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, but also to be carried live around the country on Sports Channel. What a sight it was to see 200 fans in a 22,000 seat building. But hey, Herb was ready, and no one could ever say that Vince McMahon had anything over Herb in the marketing genius category. After all, he did air 10 commercials for UWF merchandise during the blackjack brawl, even if all of them did only push one product, the Mr. Electricity Herb Abrams t-shirt. I asked his girlfriend after the show how he got the Mr. Electricity nickname, and she put her hands over her head, shook her hips, and gave a very animated, because when he plugs it in, it really turns me on. The UWF soldiered on, hemorrhaging, or to be more appropriate, blasting, money throughout the early 90s, with Abrams keeping the company afloat by forgetting, quote-unquote, to pay his employees. Abrams took on a partner in 1993 by hiring Zoog's Rift, an eccentric musician responsible for singles such as A Blind Man's Penis and the album Island of Living Puke. Shockingly, the UWF only lasted until 1994, dying a merciful death after their last gasp for success known as the Blackjack Brawl. The promotion won the following Wrestling Observer Awards during its tenure. 1990, Worst Television Announcer, Herb Abrams. 1991, Worst Promotion of the Year, UWF. 1991, Worst Television Show, Fury Hour. 1994, Worst Major Wrestling Show, The Blackjack Brawl. Upon closing shop, the UWF tape library was left in storage in California and maintained by former wrestler Al Burke. When Abrams died, Burke claimed the property for himself as abandoned property. Abrams were made largely forgotten until ESPN Classic began airing old UWF Fury Hour episodes in 2008. Ironically, the Fury Hour episodes were only a half hour long.
1980 when this occurs. Has AWA infiltrated or have they been in Chicago for a while at that point? Oh, yes. Here's, Absolutely, okay. because remember, the, Chicago was a very unique city in that it was co-owned by the AWA and the WWA for a long right, time. Right, right. So here's Until why about I say 82 that. 82 when he finally bought out Dick the Bruiser. But here's why I say that. And this is the Alex Jones conspiracy theorist in myself talking. This okay. is why I asked that question. So I'm looking at all of the title changes that have happened for the AWA up to this point. Not once has anything happened in Chicago. This title change to Vern is the first time that there's a title change in Chicago. So I was kind of think I at, of course not knowing the stuff I thought oh well maybe that was part of them coming in there looking for something big in Chicago whatever cha- have a title change in Chicago get that crowd interested. I didn't know that they had covered the Chicago region at, up to that point. Yeah, they had been in Chicago. I mean all of the loose uh, amphitheater yeah. Film from the, you know, Bachwinkle and Stevens on top. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I Vern, guess. Vern fights Jimmy Valiant and stuff down there. But it wasn't. I mean, Chicago was a big town, but Ganya didn't own 100% of it. So right. if Ganya, you know, if Chicago drew a million dollars, he was giving half of that to Dick the Bruiser. Right. You know, okay. so it wasn't no, really. No, and that, that makes sense. And so I guess, too, again, if we're just looking at the snapshot of the heavyweight title. This is the one heavyweight title change in Chicago at that point. Who knows what's happened with the tag team titles at that? I mean, we could, I could look at yeah, that yeah, possibly. You could, you could see something like that, and that would be the case. So okay, so Vern wins the um, wins the title again, July eighteenth, nineteen eighty, um, five days after my birthday. By okay. the way, uh, Ganya retires from active wrestling. Uh, at that point, still the champion. And then they award the title to Nick Bockwinkel. Okay. Now, this is, again, going into the ego. Ganya did not want to give that title up. You know, in his mind, he couldn't give that title up because he was the best wrestler. Right. In in his mind, you know, in, in, in wrestling, uh, so many decisions are made for ego instead of for cash. In his mind, he would retire as champion because it, he was the best wrestler in the territory. Yeah. And and that's why it was going to happen. Instead of just passing it over to Ganya, or passing it over to Bach. Sure, you know. sure. Uh, now, we see evidence of this ego coming out since getting away from the title every time Ganya came out of retirement. Of course, he was always booked to win and everything. Right. But there were a lot of angles like with uh, Greg Ganya. Uh, so many angles where Greg Gagne would get beaten down and Vern would come out to save him. Right. You know, because in Vern's mind, he was the champion. When actually those situations should have been booked, something was happening to Vern and Greg would come out and, and save, save him. him. Because right. then you're building for the future and you're showing people that, oh, this this person is active, this person is right. able, as opposed to this person is just a foil to bring out the same old, the same old draw. Am I... Wrong in remembering that they did something like that with Brody? Yes, absolutely. Cause that's uh, yeah, and it's funny because Ganya comes out, gives Brody a few cuffs, throws him off, goes for a backdrop, and Brody's just like, I ain't taking a fucking backdrop <laughs> right. from you. Yeah, Boom! Yeah. <laughs> right, right. It's like, but you can see Ganya, I mean, showing babyface fire and everything like that, but he's really going through the motions, and you can see in his mind he's still he's got it, 25 right. years old, and he's winging it in there. And that's but it is why, hilarious to see Brody no-sell the Right, backdrop. right. I thought that, yeah. And um, 
I and that was why I always felt at that point too that um, what's his name Sheik and on LKC was uh-huh. such a big factor because it was almost like that was that evening out factor if it ended up being like Greg and Vern or some you know it's like two guys on the outside right it was gonna be old Vern and the Sheik and then they could you know he could yeah beat up yeah on him and they and could banter there yeah um she got on LKC longtime AWA member there are court records available. From when the uh, sheik was being sued for tax non-payment of taxes, and he had to like report his salary and how everything was broken down. So if you can find those records online, that's an interesting snapshot into the structure sure. of how the AWA was paid out and everything like that. But again, getting back to Ganya, it was this ego which everybody in wrestling has. I mean, Dusty has one of the biggest ones and everything like that. Everybody has that ego, but it wouldn't allow him to step down and do what was best for business because he was doing what was best for Ganya. Now, before I have George Shire or anybody getting down my throat on this, it was his toy so he could do with it whatever Whatever he wanted. wanted. This is just my analysis and my opinion of what's going on. No, absolutely. But I do think it's interesting, though, as myself... As a child at this point, being able to re- recognize that uh-huh. and, and see, see that. and now this is one thing that caused the AWA to start to go downhill when Vince was coming in with the new shiny product. In Vern's mind, no, this is what's always worked. This right. is what we're going to do. Right. So. Right. So um, it goes from so Bachwinkle gets awarded the title. And the lean, the, mean machine. Yes, and, and his um, hair was perfect. At this point, the phenomena that was Hulk Hogan. Phenomena. Phenomena. All right. So Hulk Hogan um, is starting to really come up into his own at this point. He comes into AWA. He sure. already done his stint with New uh-huh. York, uh, got fired from there came in i don't um, know if he got fired he said he got fired he said a lot of things that's true yes so well i'm taking his no he had his his run they did the bit with did the bit with backland did the bit with andre go somewhere else so he ends up going to awa and this character just really starts Uh taking off with the crowd everyone loves it so it culminates in the um april 18th 1982 hulk hogan versus nick bockwinkle match um, and I think uh, I'm yes. sorry. Before we get into that, yeah. I do want to point out that during this time, there are just storyline things that happened with the title, where it may have got held up temporarily or gone back to sure. Bachwinkle, you know, depending on whatever weekly development. Right. So I just want to point in that, you know, again, the wrestling history—it's whatever's going to draw money, and if they think that they could do something here to drum up interest, then that'll happen. Right. So. Right. So, they I, have this match, right? Or do you want to get, do you want to, you have some, another point? Oh, yeah, because there's an, I'm sorry, we have to go, that's when, sure. cut all this out, that's when Martel's champion, but I'll get to that. No, no worries. Okay. Well, yes, another <laughs> foreshadowing moment. Um, don't cut that out, Kyle. <sighs> we'll get to it. Uh, it's good. See, they have to he- hear that we err sometimes. We, you know. We're human. We're human people. To forgive people. divine. Yes, listeners at home, we're human. Um. They do this match, and this is it. I can tell you right now, the eight-year-old me stops with AWA for a while up at, after this point. The Super Sunday? Um, yes, because this is the Hogan, Bachwinkle, the title, everything's great. Hogan wins the title. 
I remember watching this on television mm-hmm. and uh, freaking out. I was a Hulkamaniac, loving this. This was great. And then they reversed the decision right then and there. Yes. And I swear to God, I turned off the TV and walked out and said, I'm done with the AWA. At that point, too, might have been, oh, I'm done with wrestling. Let me find, try to find something else. I mean, if right. you see of cable and all that. But uh, why? I do not, I, to this day, I still do not understand why they would have done that unless I think Vern was going to think it was going to be money to do the rematch to get in a cage or do something else down the line but I mean that was so it the the time felt right I don't maybe I'm wrong I don't know but that time felt right and I'm sure that I'm not the only person that was completely turned off at that point no absolutely I I agree with you 100 percent and there was a lot of fallout from this there are several stories going around as to what was going on here everything from Vern didn't want to put the title on a non-wrestler because Hogan was still basically a bodybuilder. Right. Although he did come up through Hiro Matsuda, so he had to learn something. Right. You know, if only how to get his ankle broke. Broken, but right. no, he had to learn something if he came out of that system. Um, there was also Hogan had the Japanese deal, and supposedly Ganya wanted a piece of that if right. he was the champion. Uh, stories about T-shirt money. Some rumor about Ganya trying to marry Hogan to one of his daughters so that he would have that family bond to give him the belt. Right. You know, just all of these, who knows what happens. You know, Probably everything's correct and nothing is. Right. Uh, there's another story about Ganya and Hogan getting in some sort of argument in the locker room or the office and Ganya shot in on him and Hogan caught him in a guillotine and choked him out. Wow. I mean, so that's not necessarily, ooh, Hulk Hogan's an MMA person. It's just, you know, nine times out of ten, Ganya will take him, but here's the tenth time he slipped on a banana peel and Hogan got lucky, and once he got him snatched in, he wasn't going to let go of him because right. he knew what would happen. So, yeah, right, you know, right. had to take it. So, you know, it's not all, you know, ducks and roses. There are a lot of, you know, backstage things going on. But, yes, that did take a lot of the steam out of the AWA at the time because maybe it was right to put the title on Hogan. Maybe right. it was right to go in this new direction. But in Ganya's mind, came from the old school, no, your champion has to be somebody that can protect himself in case something goes south. Now, were there multiple Hogan-Bockwinkle matches? Yeah, there was a handful. And they had Well, they had the one that set up the Super Sunday as cause well. There, was that the one with... Because there was one, and again, fuzzy in my mind... One was they were both disqualified for foreign objects, and then the other was Hogan dumping Bachwinkle over the top rope, and that was the Super Sunday one, I thought. Yes, yeah. Because that was he had the guy or, uh, or got Ganya, uh, Bachwinkle, He had Bachwinkle in the sleeper. He had Hogan in the sleeper. Hogan put Bachwinkle over the yep. top rope, and then that was then the rest of the match went on. Boom, 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 and then the ref they reversed or Stanley yeah. Blackburn reversed the decision. Yes. On that, okay, yeah, because I couldn't. I again, so many things. I know they had matches, but. If I'm not mistaken, but it wasn't like a year-long series. No, not at all. A, it was like it, it kind of it, it happened, uh-huh. and then all like the relationship started to break down, and then Hogan bailed. Right. Um, do you think they would have put? They would have had to have put the title on Hogan, right? Come on. I, I'm going to say no because they didn't. Yeah. Because Ganya wasn't. Because they could have pulled the trigger stuck. and be, your trigger, but because they didn't. Right. That was no. Never they could have. They could have done it in the mindset, but again, maybe Ganya was 
you know, if you would have given me a percentage of your money, I would have right. done it. Or if you would have married my daughter, you would have done it. Yeah. You know, because he wanted to do something. He was going to profit from the use of his title or somehow bind Hogan to the, right. you know, to the organization. Right. Which well, is, we'll see foreshadowing because there's another son-in-law later. Right. Well, and to me, though, too, all this, it's crazy where it's like, you know what, Hogan, eh, we're not going to do it. But um, we're going to put the title on Otto Wants. Uh, yeah, <laughs> just like a few months later, uh, we're just going to put the title on him. So to me, that's crazy. But even. there's, uh, there's a reason for that. There's 250,000 reasons for that. Right, right. That title reign was bought and paid for by Otto Vance. Uh, he wanted the prestige of holding the title. Ganya wanted the payout and he wanted a European vacation. Right. You know? Yeah. Because he wanted to go over there for that. So that title switch was bought and fa- bought and paid for, much like the Giant Baba title switches in the NWA right, or the right. one week reigns. You know that that happened. That was just a business a business reason that happened. Right. And so um, Bachwinkle, of course, gets it back the second time. The title switches back then in Chicago. Yep. The second time for that. And then that leads us to then December of that year. Oh, just wait. I oh, do yes. want to point out. Uh, like where Bachwinkle goes over and stuff like that when it's not in the Twin Cities. Yeah. You know, that's because Gagne doesn't want to see his rival look good in front of his quote-unquote hometown crew. See, I would not have guessed. Yeah. Okay, so that makes perfect sense then. So, right. Yeah, so, I mean, it's just little things like that. Yeah, right, right. Which, that that's pretty cool <sighs> to, to see that little nuance. Um, December 27th of 82 then, in Memphis, Lawler, when, quote-unquote, wins the title from Bachwinkle, but the title is held up afterwards. Uh, it's only held up in Memphis. Oh, okay. The rest of the circuit, uh, Nick Bachwinkle is still the champion. Really? Yep. Okay. Gotcha. I mean, so in the advent of the internet where we have access to that. Right. But no, um, this was during a time when uh, Jarrett would have been having trouble getting dates on the NWA champion, so they switched over to the AWA because AWA did have this reputation as a national right you know there were three titles nwa awa and then ww whatever alphabet soup they were calling right it right at the given time so it was easy to get you know that sanction and there was still some prestige in that okay but bachwinkle would come down and he was a great draw on memphis and they would do these things with lawler but w- that wouldn't be reported like on awa television sure sure that was um i just had the chance recently to watch one of the Bachwinkle Lawler matches, and it was great. It Is that really the good. fine fine per punch match? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love the buildup for that. Yeah. And that was an example of how good Bachwinkle was in Memphis. Now, we're, we're going ahead just a touch. There's another couple title changes here. Yes, So let's, sure. let's go to that, then I want to get back to the Memphis thing. Uh, so uh, as far as, well, the title's held up, but then Bachwinkle goes down um, not even three weeks later and then actually defeats Lawler in the rematch. Right. Um. From that point, then, about a month and a half, well, actually, I'm sorry, about a year later, um, Bachwinkle in Japan. Yes. Okay, so, and then he loses to Jumbo Shruta there. Yes. Um, Aside about Jumbo Shruta. Terry Funk was the referee, too. Yes, I was going to say that, but here's something. In 1984, I used to play with G.I. Joe guys. Never had WWF LJN dolls, never had any of that stuff. And I would use my G.I. Joe guys as wrestlers. Okay. 1984, that makes me 10 years old. Okay. I make my Asian G.I. Joe guy Jumbo Sharuda. Do you hear that? Do you hear that, Kyle? 10 years old, 
and the Japanese wrestler that I choose is Jumbo Sharuda. Ten years old. He also is called Tommy. Yeah, I know, but I'm saying, but for me, that... <laughs> okay. I'm just looking for a little bit of clout. Oh, uh, Do you know what enough, I mean? I'm just enough. for a 10-year-old okay, kid so to like throw that out there. Like, you were an incredible nerd. Yes. I just think, I mean, when you like something, you like okay, something. Okay, fair and enough. I was like, that's pretty cool, right? I mean, come on. I only found out Jumbo Saruta was champion when uh, Rick Martel finally beat him. Right, and that's what I and was... And this, yeah. this was another title, uh, title reign that was bought and paid for. Was it really? Yes. By Martel or by Saruta? No, no, by Baba. Just kidding. I know. I know Martel didn't. No. What do you think about Martel? I liked him. He was the champion when I first started getting into that. So, okay. I mean, I liked him. He was it very just, capable. Yeah. It just uh, that was that white meat baby face smile. Okay. For I'm, miles. I'm glad you brought this up because yes. during the time Martel was the AWA champion. They still wanted to do title programs down in Memphis with it. But okay. Martell wasn't seen as a draw down in Memphis. So they would bring in Bockwinkle as the AWA champion during Martell's title reign to work programs with Lawler. No shit. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. So Talk I mean, about a before internet time. Yes, because you could do this. People would go batshit crazy right now if, they, <laughs> if that had happened somewhere. Yeah, but because... Martel wasn't really seen as an effective heel as Bachwinkle. Right. They said, hey, we want to do a title, but we want to do it with Bachwinkle. But so. what, was Martel covered heavily in the magazines at that point? You yeah, know? he was in PWI and yeah. such. Yeah. So, what, I mean, I guess, I mean, if you're talking, I, I don't know, maybe Memphis didn't read the after mags too much. Well, it didn't read the after mags, but the they would also, the after mags would respect the promotions enough to go along with their storylines. Gotcha. You know, they, or else, you know, they'd say, hey, we're doing this deal, but don't Would they don't do phantom it. changes just to, before going down to Memphis? Or was it just, like, would there be a phantom title change as far as, or would they just give the belt to Bachwinkle and say, go down there and do this? Yeah, they just, yeah. That's crazy. Because... Yeah, in Memphis, <laughs> they didn't really read the after mags too much, or they'd figure that they were so much out of date. Sure. You know, and then, that, that, okay. then just that's something that happened, it. right? Yeah. Because who knows if Bachwinkle won the belt on a Tuesday night and came down for a Saturday Bingo, show? Bingo, because these guys wrestle all over. You know, right. they wrestle every night. And it's every night. Oh, yeah. Right. So then uh, you're looking at Martel holds the belt for like almost a year and a half, uh, and then he drops it in New Jersey, of all places, to Stan Hansen. Yes, that was part of the Pro Wrestling USA effort. Yes. And uh, Hanson takes the belt over to All Japan and defends it there um, through the summer of 90, or 96, 86. Sorry. Yes. Uh, but then controversy with Stan Hansen. Yes. What happens? Uh, what's the date in Denver? Uh, Denver is June 28th of 86. The quick version of this is Stanson Hansen. Stanson Hansen. Stanson Hansen. Stan Hansen shows up with the belt, gets told he's losing, and leaves the arena. Or th what they said on TV is he just showed up and left the arena. Yeah. But they did go into it. The background is Ganya, again from the old school, yep. uh, came from the thought process of you know you'll know what we need you to know when when we need you to know it right and per stan hansen's book so i just want to go into that he went up to bachwinkle and said hey uh i'm going to take the title off hansen what do you think of that bachwinkle just said well hansen's not going to like it 
well, I don't care if he doesn't like it. I'm the boss and he'll do what I tell him to. Yeah. So Ganya told Hanson, hey, we're going to put the belt on Bachwinkle tonight. Okay. And Hanson said, no, you can't. I'm booked in Japan as the AWA champion. I can't lose this belt until Baba tells me I can do it. Because in Hanson's mind, he was a Baba employee, you know, working for Vern. Sure. You know, so Baba was his boss and Baba was where his money was. But Vern was of the thought process, no, it's my title. You're going to do what I say. Right, right. And Stan Hansen did not appreciate that very much. So he did leave and went to Japan and toured as the AWA champion with the AWA belt. Oh, okay. I'm assuming it was the license plate or a replica. Finally, Vern Gagne serves papers on Stan Hansen. You have to return our property to the AWA. We're going to sue you and everything. Here's where the story gets kind of murky. Because apparently Stan Hansen was out driving in either his truck or a tractor wearing the belt. <laughs> and the belt fell off and somehow got under the tire treads of the whatever vehicle he was driving. Sure. Three or four different times. And then he FedExed it back to Vern Gagne. Wow. With the tire tracks still across the front. That's awesome. So there you go. There's your belt. Well, you know, Stan Hansen, not good in the eyesight department. No, no, very so, nearsighted. So, see, so very, you know. There is a chance this could be true, but for whatever reason, a right. belt that had been run over was delivered to the AWA. Which is super cool. Yes. They uh, award the belt back to Bachwinkle, which I would assume is paranoia on the part of Vergania and a- going with what he knows. Absolutely. Just Very like much, absolutely. It's like, boom, you're, no, we're, we trust you, we're going to do this. Right. And then... Uh, uh, incidentally, Stan Hansen complained through his AWA title reign that they didn't really know how to build for the long term in the AWA. Yeah. In the sense of um, it showing up to the TV tapings and instead of being handed a format, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and it would be on the board, Stan Hansen against blank, Jim Brunzel against blank. Yeah. And they would just throw jobbers out there and cut up the TV later. Because that's the formula that they did. Right. AWA was very much squash matches. And then, you know, you put put the stars against the no names on TV and then you have to pay to see the stars. Right. Which worked at one time. But we're getting into 1986. Vern has already come around, redefined that formula. But Gagne is just trying to respond with more of what he knows instead of updating his promotion or putting money into right, his production. Right. Um, I'm sure you'll recall, like, WWF at the time was very crisp and clear and shot on videotape, and AWA was still shot, you know, at the showboat or, yes. or somewhere else on what looked like a, you know, senior high school camcorder (laughs) or whatever the camera was at the time. So he didn't understand, didn't understand. It took me a long time to grasp this concept. He didn't understand what was needed to update his product because times were changing. Right. And couldn't, you know, was just blinded by the nostalgia of this is what's always worked. We're just going to do more of this. We're just going to heat it up a bit. That's all we got to do because that's all we've ever had to do before. Right. Because nobody came into our territory. But now here's somebody being very aggressive about it. Right. Well, I think at this point, too, when they award the title back to Bachwinkle, isn't he a babyface? Bachwinkle, yes. He's babyface of that. So, I mean, they shook it up a little bit. Um, I heard babyface in that great uh, angle with uh, Larry Zabisco and the nunchucks. Yes. And in fact, that kind of all plays out in the way the belt goes here. But I will say, too, as an aside, that um, the two things that, well, three things that kind of got me back into AWA at this point, we're looking at like 1987. Sure. Babyface Bachwinkle. Yep. I thought that was 
cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might have been a couple years later, but like what else got me into it? But um, the over and over replay on ESPN of Colonel De Beers face first pile driving Jimmy Snook on the cement. Right. And the New Year's Eve Midnight Rockers, um, Doug Summers, yeah, the, Buddy Road, the bloodbath. The, the bloodbath. There's a great story about that. Everybody in that match gets color except for Buddy Rose, who then, 20-some years later, Scott DeMarc, teenage heartthrob yes. Scott DeMarc, uh, confronts Buddy Rose at Cauliflower Alley. Hey, Buddy, it's nice to meet you. Hey, what? how come you didn't get any color in that match, Buddy? And Buddy's like, get the fuck out of here. So <laughs> What the hell? But you know, that's so, awesome. Love needling people on that. So that was um, yeah. Do so you remember the the, uh, the Kurt Henning? Kurt Henning really started to come into his own here right, too, right? Because there was a New Year's Eve match between Kurt Henning and Bachwinkle that was also very good. And um, right, and so that kind of led to that feud where it was the Henning uh, Bachwinkle, which leads to the next title change, which is May second of nineteen eighty seven uh, at Super Clash Two. Um, in Dale City, California. Uh, which is a suburb of uh, San Francisco, I believe. Right. So, uh, immediately after the match, the title's held up. Yep. Because uh, interference from Zabisco, which is the feuds kind of tying together there. Um, because uh, they uh, s- Just wait. Oh, I don't sure. want to gloss over this finish because it was incredible. That yeah. was the pass of the Roll of Dimes. dimes. Classic. Ro- pass Kyle, have you ever seen the Roll of Dimes? Oh, it's yes. great. It's pass really of the good. Roll of Dimes yeah. to Kurt Henning. Yes. Uh, they do the finish. Uh, Kurt Henning then shakes Zabisco's hand, pulls Zabisco's hand out of his pocket, and the dimes go everywhere. Yes, I just really I cool. want you to watch that tape because in the mastery of it, Kurt Henning never has anything in his hand. Yes, it's all. It's really it, really well it, done. It's it's all yeah. shorthand. Now what I found out later, one of the reasons the title was held up that night, is that Kurt was being wooed by the WWF, and they didn't know which way... They were way, afraid, right? Yeah, they didn't know which way he was going to go, but when he re-signed with the AWA, then and, that's right. when and he so, got the title. And so this is where AWA looks like a clusterfuck. Yes. Pardon my technical term for it. Because they hold up the title immediately that night, yep. and then next week on television go, oh, we looked over all the footage, yep. and like you said, there was really no sign that he actually had any foreign object... So we'll give it to Henning then. I mean, I w- that was very tongue in cheek because he was supposed to have the roll of dimes. Well, in no, his hand. I'm just saying his, how his mastery as a worker. Oh no, that he I, never no, did I agree, it. I agree. But I'm yeah. saying though, but like that's kind of one of those when you're like, oh my gosh, really? So like, but again, this is what they knew. This is the Deus Ex Machina that Ganya always loved to do. Right, and that was also, you know, he would do that in order to further the storyline that wrestling was a codified, organized, you know, uh, activity, and it did have this government and everything over right. the top of it. Right. You know, which, sure, right. you know, works in a vacuum, but again, you've got, eight, you know, the NWA or whatever promotions coming through on national television at this time. The WWF is, is going full bore at this time. So Ganya is really you know, back up against a corner and he's trying to come up with something that's going to pop the house in the way he understands it. But it's not so much just the angles because you, if he would have dressed up his presentation, you know, it still would have been crap, but it would have been much better looking crap that it would have taken a a long time for people to see through. Oh, absolutely. You you know what I mean? Um, so (laughs) this, this next thing is great. I think this is hilarious. Uh, May of, uh, 1988 Lawler wins the belt. 
Yes. He had beat Carrie Von Erich on December 13th in Chicago to uh, win the WCCW World Heavyweight Championship. And so this unified the AWA World Heavyweight Championship. But here's what makes this interesting. <laughs> Tell me, Jay. There was a telephone, a national telephone poll done. Yes. And you could either vote for Jackie Fargo as the special guest referee or Kurt's dad, Larry, uh, the axe as the yes. special guest referee. And in the national poll, Jackie Fargo won. Yes. I think that's great. Because I just imagine Ganya sitting back and being like, there's no way they're not going to go with the axe on this one. No, that's not true. You I don't mean, think that, so? No, that match was always going to be in Memphis. So, yeah, of course, Jackie Fargo was going to uh, win. I don't know. I you know, and they made crazy. lots of money at 50 cents a pop for those calls, too, so good for them. I'm trying to pretend like it wasn't all fixed. Oh, jeez. No I, no, I don't think it was you fixed. You don't think it was at all? No, I don't think it was. I specifically don't think it was fixed because they charged money for it. Oh, okay. You know, so it was one well, of I those weird deals. I guess if the fix was in, there'd be Yeah, there'd, there'd be lots of trouble for that. But, of course, in a, you know, a Memphis show where Jerry Lawler is going for the title, of course, the card, yeah, of course. nobody right. no, down I there. Know. I'm going to get that Larry Dax Henning in there, and he's going to show that Lawler what's what. I know. I'm just, you know, I'm just playing the role. I'm sorry, man. That's all I'm doing here. What, um, what, what direction are we going here? Just point <laughs> me. Just, sorry, just point sorry, me. sorry. So, okay, so that happens in May of 88. Then, here we go again. We're looking at January of 89. Title vacated because Lawler is stripped after the CWA, Continental Wrestling Association, splits from the AWA. Yes. And so, we all know the reason for that, right? Well, explain it to the people at home. Oh, I'm sorry. The Super Clash 3 pay-per-view where... Uh, Vern Gagne attempted to make his foray into the world of pay-per-view by getting several other promotions with right. him. I believe Portland was in there and Memphis was in there with a real big deal. Nobody ever got paid because it was such a poor draw. It was such a poor pay-per-view that Gagne just said, nope, I didn't make enough to pay any of you, so sorry. <laughs> or went to the wrestlers and said, oh, you guys from Memphis? Uh, Jarrett was supposed to pay you. Yeah, sorry. that's it. So, so nobody got paid. So... They kept saying that Lawler wouldn't come up and make title defenses, but Lawler was just saying, hey, we're not getting paid. You know, you're not, you know, it's right. the deal where Lawler still wanted to do the weekly circuit in Memphis, but Ganya was under the, no, you got my title. You're going to be up here, you know, yeah. doing all of this. So they just split off like that. And then I, I believe Lawler went on to lose the unified title to like Snowman or something <laughs> like that. Excellent. Yeah. So it was just like, oh, well, it's good to see you're. <laughs> protecting that title right, at all. Right. So yeah, Lawler gets the title yanked. And so what does the AWA do? Surely they decide to have a tournament that's going to take months and months and get everything done. No, man, a battle royal. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> so they decide uh got to be a battle royal. Comes down to the last two men who are the last two, do you remember? Uh Tom Zink and Larry Zabisco. Yes, exactly. So um they go with Larry Zabisco, of course. Zabisco. Oh, do you know why they go with Larry Zabisco? Uh, tell the people at home why they go with Larry Zabisco. Larry Zabisco is married to Donna Gagne. Who's ah, keeping it in the family. Exactly, who is Vern's daughter, of course. Right. Um, their son is now breaking into professional wrestling, so that's kind of interesting that the third generation of Gagne's are coming in. So there you go. So keeps it, that protection. Exactly, so family. that keeps it in the family, and even though Zabisco... You know, might not be the best choice. Hey, he's available, and right. we know he's not going to run. Right. Not going to run. So I he, understand later that they wound up 
getting a divorce or their marriage was contentious sure. at some time. So I don't I don't know the particulars, but for a long time, Zabisco was married into the Ganya family. Exactly. And then, so he holds the belt for a little over a year, and then he loses the title to... Mr. Saito. Who's married to? I don't know. I don't either. I just oh. thought that'd be kind of funny. <laughs> uh, no, I, I believe that might have been something that was bought and paid for, too, because Saito was such a longtime employee of Ganya. Yeah, right. Um, of course, he was there for the longest time until the issue in Waukesha, and then I believe he came back after that. Quickly describe for the people at home that don't know the issue in Waukesha. Oh, jeez. I know Everybody can't... listening to this would know this. So, uh, I believe it was August of 84, yeah, something that. like that. After a show in Watertown, uh, Patera and Saito want to get something to eat at the local McDonald's. Ken Patera, for those. Yes, sorry. Ken Patera want to get something to eat at the local McDonald's. <sighs> a, they get denied service, and a boulder somehow gets thrown through the window of the McDonald's. Somehow. Now, in an aside and something that might get us sued... The sub-story that I heard was that Tom Stone and his group of wrestling students were already in the restaurant. It had been locked and shut down. And when they, Patera and Saito were denied service at the drive-thru, as they were pulling through, Tom Stone and them were making faces and holding up their food to Patera and Saito to tease them that they had gotten served. (laughs) So, so don't great. know if that's true, but I really, really hope it I is. I hope it's true. I hope uh, it is, That would too. be so great. Uh, so then Patera lobs a boulder through the window of the McDonald's. Yes. You know, very angry. They go back to the hotel. Uh, the police are called on them. Several different stories of how it goes, goes into. Long story short, uh, a group of cops are injured attempting to apprehend these two gentlemen, including a female rookie police officer that broke her arm and had to leave the law enforcement uh, industry. And I understand she is still alive and still in the area and her family is still around, so I don't want to minimize. Right. And if she's listening, we'd love to have you on the podcast. Well, I don't think she's into that. I mean, because think about it. This was a 19-year-old girl that had her arm broken by these two guys. She's still an adult, and I'm just saying... Fair enough. That if she wants to come on, we'll fly her here. Well, this she might live here though. Fair enough. This this has um, this has implications into another incident that's happened recently. Can I just world. say, wouldn't it be awesome oh, if she had here. experienced studio wrestling? Killing me. We could have this is, two birds with no, one stone. This, is, I, this episode's going really long, but yeah, this is some yeah, good, this this is some is good stuff. Cut, this is really, no, 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 daughter, no, this is I, in. No, I just want to point this out, that at the time when this story was reported in the newspapers, everybody was like, oh, wow, these wrestlers are rough and tough, and it takes all these cops to take them out. But looking back on it, now it's like, no, this is a horrible thing that Absolutely. happened. That, you know, law enforcement were assaulted by people, you know, trying to... Now, I've heard different stories of what happens here. The thing I want to believe is they knocked on the door and Saito answered but couldn't understand what they were saying. And this escalated sure. the situation into him getting tear gassed and reaching out, you know, or striking sure. out. Like it was a misunderstanding on that part. And then Patera got involved after that. So, again, I don't know what happened. Well, but there's a history and there's a past. There's a history and there's a past, but. Well, uh, they both did time. Um, that should be our shirts. Was it? Sure. Why Wouldn't not? that be awesome, Kyle? There's a history and there's a past. So, uh, law enforcement issue at a Waukesha hotel yes. uh, led to 
Mr. Saito doing time, then going back to Japan, and I don't believe he ever really came back after that, unless it was for visits, like as the Ultimate Ninja in right. the final days of the AWA. Until he came back to defend his title on April 8th against Larry Zabisco at Super Clash 4. And then uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota. But then he dropped the title there too, didn't he? Yeah, he lost it. Yeah, to Zabisco there. Lost it back to Zabisco. And that was so it. I, so I think that was paid for. Uh, Zabisco held the title until the AWA uh, filed bankruptcy. But like as Ganya's last official act, he stripped Zabisco of the AWA title, so Zabisco could go down to Crockett and feud with Barry Windham over the Western States Heritage title with Baby Doll. Yes. Which led to the envelope angle, which never led to anything. Right, right, exactly. Um, rumor has it, too, that uh, when Zabisco got stripped um, December 12th of 1990 as the champion because he refused to defend the title on a tour of Japan. And at that point, that's when uh, PWI uh, withdrew their recognition of the world championship status. I remember that issue. Yeah. Yeah, but there was, there was no tour of Japan. I know, I'm just saying. There was just no promotion. That's the that's the kayfabe version. Incidentally, as the AWA was going out of business, when I was in college, I uh, worked at a pizza delivery, the Pizza Pit. And one time when the WWF was in town, we did get an order for Scott Hall at one of the motels. And I desperately wanted that run. But looking back, I, like my big question to ask him would, would have been, why did the AWA go out of business? Yeah. And I could just see him going, just get the fuck out of here, right. kid. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, and on that note, that's it. That's the AWA championship. There you go. It's very interesting. And again, this is a you know, a good picture of why you keep the title in the family, right. why you keep the title on the owner that's also the champion. This was also reflected Von Erich in Texas. Right. Uh Dusty in either whenever Dusty was in Florida or Carolinas, he was going to have the title cuz he knew what he was going to do. And then also in a lot of the southern territories, especially with the Goldens and the Welches, like right. why you always put it on your kin and, you know, took care of your kin. Yeah, how great. I mean, I really do look back at the AWA with fond memories. Um but I yeah, there were just some real killer moments for me. A killer moment, but it, I mean, for 40 years, an incredible promotion. Ganya had a great balance of actual, you know, athletic workers, but he also understood characters and how to mix right. them in and everything. So it was it was a churning machine that made a lot of people a living for a very long time. Absolutely. Finally, just got to the end where, you know, this is the way we did it, and this is the way we're going to drive it into the ground. I for mean, sure. the business was changing, but you know, they just couldn't evolve. Yeah, there you go, AWA. Uh, again, thank you, Derek. That was awesome. A good good discussion. Uh, definitely something that I've been looking forward to, and I hope that the listeners have been as well. Uh, this has been Cigars and Conversations with Derek St. Holmes Esquire. We are heard exclusively at OneGimmickWorld.com. And next week, a fan favorite is returning, Derek. It is uh, as opposed to a rule breaker. Yes, uh, the 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 yes, the fan favorite of listener questions. We threw it out there. I keep wanting to call that viewer mail because of David Letterman. I know, same here. So, um, so yes, to uh, um, put it together, we are going to be answering, or not so much me as much as Derek, answering questions uh, culled from the mail from our great listeners, which is you. So until next time. I'm Jay Gilkay. This is Derek St. Holmes Esquire, and you've been listening to Cigars and Conversations exclusively on OneGimmickWorld.com. See you next time.